everyone. Welcome back to Beyond the Q, a brand new podcast by Stonely that looks at the human side of customer support leadership. Customer support is a people business, and leaders who embrace that will build happier teams that lead to happier customers, more revenue, and all around better businesses. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger, and this week I'm excited to welcome Susanna D'Souza, the Senior Manager of Customer Support at Loom. When COVID hit last year and the world suddenly moved to working and learning online, Loom saw a massive increase in users, nearly overnight. In this episode, I talk with Susanna about how she and her six-person support team responded when their ticket volume skyrocketed from 2,000 tickets to 12,000 in just one month. Hey everyone, today I am super excited to welcome Susanna D'Souza. She's the Senior Manager of Customer Support at Loom and a former CX leader at Airbnb. And today I'm going to talk to her about how she scaled and manage the support team at Loom when their support volume just skyrocketed last year. So thank you so much for being here, Susanna. Thank you so much for the invite, Meredith. I'm super, super happy to be here. So I'm a huge fan of Loom. I use it all the time for screen capture videos. In fact, I think the last uh, two videos on my LinkedIn page were recorded with Loom. But for anyone watching who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about what Loom does? Yeah, absolutely. So Loom is video messaging for work, simply put. It is a way for you to record your screen, your camera, your audio in one simple step. And you can use that video to instantly share it with customers, with your team, onboard new customers and sales pitches, you name it. We have schools all around the world using Loom to educate students. We have students using Loom to practice their presentations. So the use cases are really, really unlimited. That's really cool. So I bet given that last year was probably pretty crazy for for your company, I would imagine. Yeah, it was insane. So whenever COVID really hit and, you know, workers all around the world had to find ways to communicate, they were basically forced to, from one day to the other, just go home and work and they had to find tools to keep communicating. That obviously, you know, had a huge impact for Loom. We started growing like crazy. We were growing. We were definitely on our way to with a very steady growth, but that was just kind of like a catalyst, right? And then on top of that, I'm super proud with how the Loom team responded to COVID and our leadership team decided to make Loom free for all educators and students all around the world. And that was just amazing. We saw, you know, Tons of new users in terms of like teachers and students just using Loom every single day. Schools were closed, so they were doing their lessons through Loom. Um, Even my mom is a teacher here in Portugal, and she was using Loom with her students and calling me and being like, why doesn't this work? And we're like, yeah, we're trying to fix everything. We just had like massive growth. So yeah, it it was a crazy, crazy time back in March, April, May. Those three months for us were just like absolutely insane, but really exciting. Yeah, and that's really cool that that your company offers the offer Loom for free for educators. That's a really great idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was super proud of it too. Yeah, and you know, on the note of that growth, I've heard you say before that Loom is now supporting over 10 million users worldwide. That's crazy. So, can you tell me a little bit about all the growth last year and how that affected your team and your support strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember. We were in Barbados in the beginning of the year, January. We were basically in 
paradise planning the year ahead. And we had no idea that a huge pandemic was going to hit us and that the environment and was going to change drastically. So we did not plan for COVID. Obviously, no one did. And we just had to change a lot with our strategy. We had to figure out ways that we can improve our workflows. We had to create new workflows. We had to create new admin tools. We had to basically change everything. We had to throw out our plans for 2021 and start from scratch, but from like really behind now, because, you know, as the weeks went by, more and more support tickets were coming through, more users were signing up, more issues were coming up too, because, you know, things break. So you're always kind of like, fighting that backlog you're trying to get ahead you're you're being a firefighter so the team honestly like the team is absolutely fantastic and i i'm so proud of them and i couldn't have you know been and done what we we did last year without them so honestly it was it was fantastic but i think that essentially we had to adapt super quickly again, to workflows that we had not planned on existing before. One of those changes specifically was how our support workflow or our support volume, I should say, just skyrocketed in a couple of months. We saw our volume grow 6x in just one month, and that was crazy. And for many people, I feel like this might be a signal that you need to hire to respond to the increased volume. And you asked me, how did that change? How did that impact us? Well, for us, we we decided to actually take a, a little bit of a different approach in the beginning. So we waited and we automated, which is a funny way to put it. But essentially, we, we took a step back and we looked at everything that we could do to decrease the volume before we invested, invested in, in recruiting, for example. So, and this is not because we didn't want to grow the team, but because we didn't want to make any rash decisions uh, based on seasonality. So we knew that COVID, unfortunately, was here to stay, but we didn't know if that volume was here to stay too. So as a result, with all the automation, we were able to decrease our volume. And instead of hiring multiple teammates at that time, we just hired two. And then once we had a better understanding of how the volume was going to evolve, it actually started picking up again when we launched Limp for Teams in October. And we knew at that time that that's not going to be seasonal volume, right? So it's going to continue to, to build up as we got more users. So we had more weapons to say, okay, yeah, this is going to be the way that our volume is going to grow. So at the time, we then hired six more teammates who just joined us in December and again, I couldn't have done it without my amazing support team. They were absolutely key in making sure that we could continue supporting our customers through this pandemic. Awesome. I remember you mentioning in a webinar a couple of weeks about what you did to kind of address this huge increase in tickets because at the time, your team was still pretty small, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were probably like six people. I forget now. It feels like such a long time ago which is crazy. But yeah, when I <laughs> when I share that story, I'm honestly I'm super proud of it because this was something that we did and it was a risk. We didn't know if it was going to work, and fortunately it did. The response was was great, but I'm sure that it it definitely, you know, frustrated a lot of people and it's not something that is scalable, but it's something that it was an emergency and we had to do something. So I know that you know the story, Meredith, but the context here is that our support team was not ready for the massive spike in volume that we received when COVID hit. So that forced 
everyone to start working from home and communicating online. So on top of that, we offered our paid plan for free, as I mentioned, to anyone in the education sector. So no limits. They continue to do schoolwork. And although I'm super, super proud of that, that also means that we went from like 2,000 support tickets to 12,000 in just a month, as I, meant, I mentioned. So that was that was crazy. And what happened was that we, we literally, literally had thousands of customers waiting for an answer in just a matter of days. And that meant that our CSAT, which is the metric that we use mostly to understand what the sentiment is from our customers in, in response to our service, it dropped 10 percentage points. And for us, that was catastrophic. It went from like 93% to 83%. And it was horrible. It had never, ever, ever happened before. And it had never been that low either. So we knew that something had to change. We knew that we had to do something. So we struggled with it a ton because we wanted to get back to everyone as soon as possible, but we just didn't have the resources to do it. We were six people in support. So we thought, okay, what can we do? We leaned on one of Loom's values as a company, and we decided to lead with transparency. So essentially what I did was I recorded a one-minute video, and we sent that video to around 4,000 people. And the video was a very transparent video of me being like, hey, I know you're waiting. I know you've been waiting for a few days. I am so sorry. And then I showed like a chart of our support volume in which you basically saw, okay, 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 then like huge spike. And that was a concerning chart, obviously. And then I also showed photos of the six people in the support team that were helping customers at that time. And most of all, I just apologized. And I said, look, we're a small team. We have this much to handle. I'm really, really sorry. We're going to get to you as soon as we possibly can. And I think the transparency and the maybe like vulnerability of that video really just created the opportunity to have a really excellent feedback or response back. All of a sudden we were getting responses and updates from people saying, hey, it's okay. Like I understand no one planned for COVID. We're all in our water. And I think just having that level of empathy was amazing. It was, you know, still our exceptional times that we're living in. And I think people really appreciated that update, that explanation. So based on that, we actually encouraged the team to double down on that video recording we went from around 200 videos per month from six people to 500 videos per month. And the best thing was our CSAT just continued to grow over the next couple of months. And we we got back to 93%, I believe, three months later, which to me is just a fantastic win. So that was a really, really great experiment that we ran. And I'm super proud of the team once again for, for delivering <laughs> to our, our customers. Yeah, for sure. That's a great story. And that's amazing that you were able to get your CSAT score right back to where it was and so quickly. Yeah, honestly, that's the best part is the fact that we then knew from our customers that, okay, even though it's taking us a little while, we're still delivering a service that they you know, value that is helping them. So if we remove that time constraint, then, you know, everything should be fine, but it is the time part that was the most difficult part, is fighting the backlog. So then again, we also had to go back to automation. How can we be more efficient? How can we find, you know, the tickets or the support requests that have specific keywords that we can just let users know, hey, this is the answer. 
in an automatic way so they don't have to wait because people don't want to wait for a response back. They don't even want to contact customer support. They just want to figure out what the issue is and get on with their day so that they continue to unlock value with the tool that they are using. So our job is to facilitate really. And if we don't get back to people in time, we're definitely not doing our jobs. Gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like you took kind of a two-pronged approach to trying to solve this massive queue of tickets, kind of both investing on the self-serve support side and then also hiring a couple reps and then hiring a few more down the line. So I'm curious for you as the team manager, how did you balance hiring new agents, uh, managing the team you already had, and then probably still crushing tickets on your own too? <laughs> not as many as I'd like, to be honest, but I try sometimes. Although, because I'm not in the queue so much, I end up being like a newbie and I have to rely on my team to help me fix new issues. So it's a, it's a learning experience every time. But thank you for that question. I, I definitely love working with teams that are cohesive and building cohesive teams. I think it really goes back to the concept of just surrounding yourself with people that share your beliefs. I think my experience at Airbnb was really special for a number of reasons, but probably the main one is that I walked away with friends for life and that is just invaluable to me. I think that, again, like if I think back to that time, I remember distinctly listening to Airbnb's founder and CEO, Brian Chesky, and he was talking about the company's mission, the company's vision, and he was just able to influence a very big group of people. And I truly believe that having like a leadership team that can inspire people to do their best work is a really amazing way to build a happy, productive team. And I think I have that at Lim too, which is one of the reasons why I love working there so much. So I think our founders do a fantastic job of attracting talented people based on the vision they have for Loom. It all really starts with them and how they position the company. And once that's out there, Amazing people will come and work at Loom because they see their own values reflected in ours. So honestly, my job as a hiring manager and a manager, honestly, is just definitely made easier by the fact that Loom as a brand is just fantastic and it kind of like stands on its own. But it's not all about the brand, right? We have to be realistic. It's about the day-to-day. -day. It's about how you manage people day-to-day. -day. And I do believe that as a manager, I, I need to constantly challenge myself and the team to find opportunities for learning and developing the skill sets, right? So in theory, it's all great. It looks amazing on paper, but in practice, that's where it gets a little bit harder, right? So that's where things get more complicated, especially when you grow at a, or when you work at a startup that is growing super fast, people tend to wear many, many hats, be really busy. So sometimes it feels like dedicating time for personal growth for learning and developing. Sometimes that is kind of like a, a little bit of a, a forgotten priority in that sense. So with my team, we have a few initiatives to promote spending time developing those skills. We, we have full project days, we like to call them, so that support reps can take time away from the queue and basically work on a project that they feel passionate about. It can be related to support. It can be related to other teams. They're not expected to answer any customer requests or even be online in Slack. They get the entire day to dedicate to a pre-approved project. And although the team doesn't take as many project days as I wish they would, it's a start and, and we'll get there. And obviously, you know, and I can talk about this 
four days, honestly, but there's also career development. We want people to, to spend time developing their skills, but also we want to make sure that we provide them with the opportunities to grow in their careers. Let's be real, especially in support. Working there, it, it takes a toll. You can spend you know, two, three years de-escalating angry, frustrated customers over and over again while still being a delightful human, providing a really great support experience. You probably won't want to do it again. You probably want to do something else, even if it's for a little bit. So I think that the good news here is that support skills are super transferable. I think that working with customers, developing product instinct in that sense, developing technical skills, these are all opportunities for growth. And whether that is within the support org or even laterally with other functions in the company, at Airbnb, for example, we, we saw this happen as the company grew. We saw that, you know, especially in support, we would see people move to product or project management, sales, even recruiting, because all of those skills are transferable. And as Loom grows, I think that, and I have no doubt that we will see the same type of moves happening within the organizations as well. And I'm sorry, I went kind of like on a ramble. Did I even touch on any of the topics you asked me about? I'm sorry. Yes. And no, that's great because that's what I was going to ask you about later on anyway. So knowing that kind of movement happens for your customer support team, like to a product role, to recruiting, et cetera, how do you as a manager help your team figure out what skills they should be investing in based on those other areas they could transfer to based on their interests and so on? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. So it really depends on the person and it depends on what they see themselves doing in a few years, a couple of months, whatever it is, whatever is in their timeline. At Loom, we typically do every three months, we do a review. It's not always a performance review, but it's definitely a time that we dedicate to align and just make sure that we understand, okay, are we going in the right direction? Is there anything that we need to change? Should we start doing something else? And these are conversations that I love to have with my team because not only I understand what they're feeling, but it also gives me insight in terms of what would they like to do. And I, I truly, truly believe that their success is my success. I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm not there to say, okay, you're in the support team. You have to stay in the support team. I'm there to support them. Literally my job as a support manager is to support my team even before I support my customers. Because my team oh, is in that. the front lines. <laughs> Glad you do. <laughs> but like my, my team is, they're the heroes of the show. If they don't have the tools that they need, if they don't feel you know, recognized or listened to, then they're not going to do their best job or the best work. So I'm there to, to help them succeed. And a big part of that success for them is to make sure that they know where they're going and that I'm there to help them on that journey along. Does that answer the question more or less? Yeah. And I'm curious too. I I was listening to an interview with your VP of product, Anique, the other day, and she was talking about building a culture and how that's a priority for Loom. So I'm curious, as the support team manager, how do you go about building that culture, building these happy, productive teams, especially recently doing that all remotely? Yeah, I I think that's a really, really great question. I think we need to realize that whenever we hire, let's say, our first five agents, 
what we do in terms of workflows, in terms of culture, it's going to be drastically different than when we hire our first 15 agents. And that's okay. That's expected. I think that's a good thing, especially because as we add more people to the team, something that we like to say at Loom is that we're not looking for culture fits. We're looking for culture ads. And essentially, we expect our culture to change with the people that we hire because everyone is different. Everyone has their unique value that they you know, create and that they add to the company and to the team. And I've seen my support team evolve over the past four years in which I was alone. Then we were a couple of people. Now we're 15 people. And there's dynamics that are created. There's people that shine doing certain things. And that is amazing. Like I feel like I'm just watching something happen that in a way I facilitated, but they probably don't need me anymore. And that's a really great feeling to have, to see them evolve and grow. So yeah, culture is a really interesting and weird thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just stoked to be a part of it and to be, and I'm privileged that I, I've got to be a part of creating the Loom culture as a company, but also the support team's culture. Right. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So I know that you worked at Airbnb before. What are some of those major differences between going from a larger, more established company to building a support team from scratch at a smaller startup like Loom? That's a great question. Everything is different. The principles are the same. You are there to work together to provide an excellent support experience to customers. But everything else is the same. At Loom, you know, I had to work on everything from scratch. There was nothing when I joined. I remember my first day, I started working at like 9 a.m. in Amsterdam. And Joe, one of the co-founders and CEO, it was like midnight his time in San Francisco. And he like jumped on a Zoom call with me and he was like, all right, well, I'm about to go to bed. Happy first day. This is a spreadsheet that we have with all of the systems that we have. These are the passwords. Good luck. If you need anything, I'll be online in the morning. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. Like, I'll figure it out. And that was a really, really interesting experience, or it has been an interesting experience, being privileged to grow a team from scratch, learning a lot, failing a lot, uh, but learning from those failures as well. Meeting people that without them, I don't think the support team would have been here. Honestly, like I was incredibly lucky to find our, our first support team members at Loom. And when I say fine, really the truth is they actually found us. So I had nothing to do with finding them. But I think it's incredibly important to surround yourself with the founding team that you know shares your values when it comes to delivering support, but also understands the business side. So the importance of automation, the importance of decreasing costs to make sure that the, the support team is seen as a resource. And you know our first two support teammates excel at that. And when I got to Airbnb, we, you know, had a small team that was much, much larger when I left, but, you know, there were some workflows in place. The company itself was a lot more established. So it had a mission, it had a vision, it had, you know, principles that people operated by. And I had my work cut out for me. It was much, much easier for me to, you know, get there, start working and, and, do what I could do to, to help the company. But yeah, I mean, very different experiences. Both have been fantastic opportunities for me to grow one more on kind of like the entrepreneurial side and then the other more on 
finding out my passions are, how I can help, how I can coach, all that stuff. Gotcha. That's really cool. So since you have so much experience in building teams, either from the ground up or from smaller to larger, I'm curious, what do you look for in a great support agent? So you can look for hard skills all you want. You can look for, you know, the resumes that are built out. You can look for those hidden gems, the candidates that on paper look amazing. But at the end of the day, maybe they're a bad hire. Again, I was incredibly lucky to find Lauren and Matthew, the two first support teammates that I, I just mentioned, and to grow the team from one to 15 with really, really fantastic people and minimum attrition. But if you're a manager and you hire someone that ends up being you know, a bad hire, the most important thing that you can do is one, understand that and two, act on that. So the acting part is really, really not easy. But it's something that an old friend actually from Airbnb taught me once. And that is if someone's performance is weighing the team down and they don't deserve to be in the team, then it's not fair and you need to let them go. In other words, if the team needs to continually do extra work to cover for that person, right? So that's a lesson I learned. So based on that and understanding, okay, what types of skills do I look for? I try to surround myself with people that are incredibly empathetic, that are ambitious, that are proactive, that are, you know, self-starters, that are curious learners, that want to grow and have that ambition. I look for those skills more than I look for hard skills because it's support. You can teach people how to do support, but you cannot teach people how to be empathetic, at least not very well, right? So for me, it's honestly like, can they communicate? Are they effective communicators? If they are working on Slack, do they understand, you know, tone? Are they going to be able to help teammates? Are they willing to help teammates? It's those things that you cannot tell from a resume and you cannot tell from probably an application, but you have to know someone and get to know them to really understand if they would be a culture ad, as I mentioned before. So I'm curious, with all the hiring that you did last year and with everybody being hired and onboarded remotely, how do you identify empathy when you're doing all of that virtually? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And I think as a manager, I I just can't afford to assume that people know what's expected of them. And I think that's something that we need to improve a lot, especially now that we're moving more towards like a hybrid workforce model. We need to properly communicate goals, expectations, just everything right and this also happens in an office but i think it's exacerbated when people are working remotely so how to identify empathy do you mean also like in the recruitment process or specifically like when people are working on the team already i think both right so at loom our our recruitment process and I, this is kind of true also for airbnbs Actually, I'll start with the Airbnb example. So when when I was at Airbnb, something that they taught me was to hire for core values. And this has stuck with me during my time at Bloom. And we, we kind of did the same in a different version. But essentially what happened at Airbnb was that we actually had a core value team. In the beginning, Brian Chesky would essentially interview everyone before they joined the company. So he was interviewing, you know, dozens of people every single week. And then Airbnb hit like fast growing, hyper growth, whatever you want to call it, as we know. 
and he stopped being able to do that. He couldn't meet everyone on a daily, weekly basis. So he was forced to create the Core Valley team. And at some point during my tenure at Airbnb, I was invited to be part of the Core Value team, which was a huge honor. Um, we were trained by Brian Chesky with his vision for everyone that he wanted to hire, how it looked like to work at Airbnb. And a lot of the questions that I would ask in an interview to assess core values were designed especially for that purpose. So I was in support, I was in payment support, but I could be you know, interviewing an engineer or a marketing manager or someone in finance. It did not matter. I didn't have to assess any hard skills. All I had to do was go in there and try to assess, is this someone I would work with and I would be happy to work alongside with? Is this someone that has values that are relatable to Airbnb's these values and my personal values? And through communication, we would try to assess that. And that's also something that I try to do at Loom. And the way that our interviewing process works is that we design it to figure out by asking certain questions or by proposing certain exercises that we can determine if someone shows the qualities, specifically empathy in this case, that we would hire them for. Gotcha. I know I've been on hiring committees in the past too. And one of the things I always like to do is take the candidate out for lunch or dinner and see how they interacted with the wait staff. It's a small thing, but that was one way that I judged character and empathy. And so I'm just curious how that, you know, how that translates. You can't meet a person face to face. You can't take them out for a meal. So how do you identify that character and empathy? And if you're able to share, what are some of the questions that you ask to gauge that? I'm trying to think actually of our recruitment process and the types of questions that we ask. But for example, recently for support is based on empathy and, you know, customer issues, you have to respond with empathy. So I feel like I have my my work cut a little bit easier because of that. But recently we just hired six people for the team. And one of the exercises that I ran through with them is essentially telling them, hey, this is a fictional situation how would you respond? And then seeing that first response and then adding more to that and then seeing how they respond and then adding even more to that and then like really pressing to understand, okay, is there a breaking point? Can we push them a little bit more? And, you know, most people would just like do amazing because they were truly empathetic people. They, you know, could get back to me with a reasonable answer. And even though I was throwing them curveball after curveball after curveball, they would just do amazing. And I really love doing that exercise specifically because it's just a really great way for me to assess, okay, are they aware that I'm testing them for different things? If so, how do they respond to that? And for me, that's a huge telling sign. If someone you know, just shows all of the qualities that we're looking for, and if so, then most likely they will get a job at Loom. And if not, then unfortunately, it's a no from me. I'm curious, what are some of those qualities? I know transparency and empathy are a couple. What are some of the other main ones? So our values as a company, we have one that is embrace the weird. So we definitely want to see people that love just kind of like being themselves and have a unique factor to them. I think that's awesome, especially when it comes to building the culture and just making sure that we're a diverse team. And we really care about that. And we want to make sure that we represent that in the support values as well. But also that they're an advocate, both for the customer and the product. 
that they're curious, that they ask questions, that they're not just a yes person, that they're someone who, if they find that something is wrong or could be improved, that they raise their hand and they, they express those feelings. I like to make sure that I tell my team, hey, if I don't know it, that it's broken, I can't fix it. And what I'm really trying to do is create an environment where people feel comfortable raising their hand and speaking up. Because I feel like that is one of the most crucial ways that we can make a difference at Loom, that we can guide how the product evolves, that we can really shape how Loom is going to be in the future. And without people that are willing to put their hands up or that are willing to say, you know, ask questions or understand how things work, we're not going to get there. Gotcha. Cool. So, you know, given that you're trying to find this certain set of values in the case of hiring those six new reps, so you're trying to find these values, you're trying to find these reps probably pretty quickly. How do you scale your hiring process so you're finding quality people in a condensed time frame? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And fortunately, we have a recruiting team, a people ops team that were just an amazing help. And I don't think I could have done it. I mean, I know that I couldn't have done it myself if it wasn't for them. Basically, my job in the whole hiring process was have a second call, review an assignment, and go to what we call a super day in which we, we make sure that a candidate will meet several people on the team at the same time. So that's one of the ways that we expedite the process. It's a very condensed process. It's kind of like screening call, hiring manager call, assignment, super day, offer. And we did it for dozens of candidates, I want to say, to land on those six people over a period of four to six weeks, I also want to say. So if it hadn't been for the structure that our recruiting team put in place, I could have never found six awesome people to join the team that went through the process in the way that they did, making sure that we interviewed them for skills, hard and soft, the assignments that they did, and then also met you know a ton of people from the team. And we, we had that super day conversation, which I find to be incredibly useful to just kind of like stress test how they do with different people on the team in the same day, back to back. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a good way to test for sure. <laughs> it's a bit intense, to be honest. So it sounds like a big part of that strategy is just making sure that there is a clear structure, a clear set of values, and just really clear communication between you and your recruiting team about what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we we 100% need to be on the same page in terms of what type of candidates we're looking for. And for me as a hiring manager, that is 100% my responsibility that I'm communicating that accurately, not just to the recruiting team, but also to everyone interviewing so that everyone is on the same page, everyone has access to the same documentation and the same profiles. And we, we need to make sure that there's a lot of structure because realistically, if we hire six people, we probably need 600 resumes. We, we need to look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of candidates to land on those six awesome people. And it's a huge job. It's something that I don't think that I could do over and over again and achieve the same quality. We got super lucky, but also tons of merit to the people that got the job. They are fantastic. But repeating this over and over again, you're probably not going to get so lucky every single time, right? There's always 
going to be a time where maybe you didn't hire the right person, then, as I mentioned before, and you have to kind of like realize that and take that action as well. But I, I just want to be like realistic that every single time that you're growing teams, every single time that you go into the recruiting process, even though you do everything right, it might not work out in the end the way you envision it. The most important thing is that you realize that, you learn for the next time, and then you you do it all over again, essentially. <laughs> Repeat and again. <laughs> so I'm curious if you have similar structures in place or if there's still that that core belief in having a structure with the onboarding process. So once you hire all those reps and you need to onboard them quickly, I assume, so that they can get a feed and start um, start helping resolve tickets. What does your process look for onboarding? Yeah, that is a great question because our onboarding process has changed and evolved a ton of times. And I'm super proud for the, the onboarding process that we have currently. I do need to give a shout out to Jacqueline on my team. She's a senior member of my team who has dedicated an enormous amount of time making sure that our onboarding is polished, that is structured, that is clear, and that we communicate our expectations at every single step. So typically what happens when someone onboards to Loom is that there's all that people up stuff, you know, computer setup, all of that happens, obviously. But then for the support team, we typically do a two-week onboarding in which we just talk about product. We teach them workflows. We slowly onboard them onto you know, our ticketing platform. We go through customer issues, customer stories. We facilitate meetings with other teams. Just a typical onboarding where I think that there's a lot of value in what we do is that we then implement a 30, 60, 365 program, which basically means that me as the hiring manager or actually just the manager of the team, because at that point, I'm not the hiring manager anymore. I meet with each person individually and together we set goals for the first 30 days at Loom. So what does it look like to be here after 30 days? What would you like to accomplish? What are my expectations? And I always have a list that I share with them. And together, we basically put a document in writing that is kind of like a contract. So for the first 30 days, here's our shared expectation. And then we deliver on them, right? So after those first 30 days, then we do the 60. And after the 60, then we talk about the entire year. So right now, we're actually at the end of the first 60 days of the new December class that we just had. So it's a very exciting time. We're going to start talking about the future long-term. And as a manager, there's nothing better. And then something else that we do to make sure that people are fully ramped up, we don't expect them to be fully ramped up after two weeks of onboarding. We then implement a 10-week roadmap in that sense. And every single week we explain this is your goal in terms of tickets that we would like for you to receive. We would like to, for you to meet with one person or two or three, whatever it is. We would like for you to work on this task, on this project, whatever it may be. So it's all laid out 10 weeks and every single week they go in, they check what the goals are for that week and then they deliver on it. So for me, it's transparency, clarity, and just over communication over and over again. Wow. That's awesome. That kind of reminds me of that phrase, I think made from Brene Brown, it says clear is kind, unclear is unkind. And that's what strikes me about this. Like, yeah, like just keeping it clear, making sure everyone understands exactly what's expected of them. So yeah, it sounds like a really great way to, to scale that onboarding process too. 
Oh, thank you. It's been working quite well. The, this last version, again, as I, I said before, we when you grow a team from zero to five, from five to 10, from 10 to 15, things just break constantly. And what worked when we were five people does not work anymore. So we had to revisit our onboarding, especially because that's really the moment that you use to set people up for success. If your onboarding isn't great, then your impression, your first impression of the company probably isn't that great either. You don't feel supported. You don't feel like you know where the information is. And for me, just not understanding those dependencies just doesn't set people up for for success, I would say. Right. It makes sense. The mark of a good manager. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but I try. (laughs) Cool. Well, that's probably a good place to, to start wrapping up. I could talk about this with you all day, but I do want to be respectful of your time. So my last question is, what advice would you give to an up-and-coming support leader? That is an awesome question. And one that I haven't really thought of in a while, I would say. But I think that 2020 taught us that things change fast and we can't take anything for granted. So if you're just starting as a support leader, support manager, whatever you want to call it, in a company that maybe is fast-growing or isn't, it doesn't matter because the principal is always the same. Support your team and just make sure that they are doing their best work when they feel supported. I talked about this before, obviously, but their success is your success and you're there to support them. I know it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but for me, it's been what has worked the best throughout all these years. If you surround yourself with people that trust you, and that you trust that they will do their best work and that they will represent the company, you're setting yourself up for success. You want to make sure that you're always learning. There's so many things changing all the time. Surround yourself with people that you truly find inspiring. If you don't have a mentor, try to find one. And if you can't find one because they're not available to you or you don't have that sort of connection, look online. But just never, never, never stop learning. I remember back in the day when I was at Airbnb, I used to watch a lot of TED Talks. I was working remotely from Portugal. So my FaceTime with my managers was, you know, Zoom. And I didn't see my colleagues unless we were going to like an offsite, uh, which is actually the same as Loom right now and most people in, in the entire world. But back in the day, communication felt a little bit more asynchronous than it is now. We used to email for everything, which feels crazy right now. But I used to watch a lot of TED Talks and I didn't have a mentor. And I remember finding Amy Cuddy's Fake It Until You Make It. And that TED Talk honestly like changed the way I felt and I was, to be honest. Like it was life changing for me. And even though I didn't have a mentor, I look at Amy today. I don't know her, by the way. And I see her as a mentor because her knowledge was accessible to me through the internet and it is accessible to literally everyone. So even though you can't find a a mentor, don't let that be a roadblock. Continue finding those opportunities for learning online and then surround yourself with people you trust. And yeah, you'll you'll be successful. Awesome. I love that. (laughs) I, I love that concept of always continuing to learn. I know that's that's been an important L of my career as well. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me today, Susanna. This was really fun. 
Um, I feel like I learned a ton, so I'm sure uh, the rest of our viewers will as well. Thank you, Meredith. It was an absolute pleasure. I learned a ton from you. Oh, well, good. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Beyond the Q. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. Bye.